Hermeneutics. Principle number four. The fourth principle for interpreting the Bible is history and culture. We're on page 33 in the notes. Page 33 in our notes tonight. And the fourth principle of hermeneutics is simply this. The Bible was written in a specific historical and cultural context that will guide you to the correct interpretation. That is, the history and culture of the Bible will guide you as you're interpreting the Bible. So as you look at the fish, look at the fish in light of what? The history and the culture. Number one, you need to gather facts about biblical history and culture whenever you can. Gather facts about history and culture whenever you can. Where is the best place to get those facts? Mr. Komatimbe, where is the best place to get the facts for interpreting, for, for, fact, for culture and history? The Bible itself. Look at letter A. Observe carefully the historical details. Where? Underline that. Where are you going to learn about the history and the culture? The Bible itself. This book is a full university education. I have to mention this because some people think if I didn't go to a university and have a big degree then I don't know all the things about the culture and the history. So I can't say this. Yes, you can, because if you just look at the Bible carefully, you can reconstruct a great deal of the history and culture. I will tell you this. I love to read books, but I do not read very many commentaries. A commentary is a book that explains the verses of the Bible. So if you're looking at Ezekiel 28 verse 4, a commentary would be a book that would say verse 4 means this. I rarely look at commentaries. I'm not against them. They are excellent things. But as I've told you before, just looking at the fish takes me so much time in my study that I commonly don't even have time to go to commentaries. And there's a reason I do that. Because I'm working with people, most of whom will have a full-time job. If the Lord leads you back to Zimbabwe to start a church, you're going to be working from the time the sun rises until the time the sun goes down to try to get food for Alex and Alicia. When are you going to have time to read five commentaries? And where are you going to buy those commentaries from? I would love it if you had a beautiful desk and a nice computer and you had books and all this and you were able to get eight hours of sleep and wake up at six in the morning and pray and fast and then study the Bible for six hours. But that is a luxury that very few pastors in Africa or China or the, the less developed places of the world have. Most people are going to be, most pastors are going to be tent-making pastors, which means they will be working while they're preaching, which means the time you have to prepare is small. 
And if your time to prepare is small, you should devote it, first of all, to looking at the fish. And I try to model that. If you have been helped by my preaching, the majority of what I get is from reading the Bible and praying and memorizing the Bible. So if you have a Bible and a set of eyes, you can get what I got for the most part. Yes, I do like to read books and I try to read books. But the substance of a gospel minister is not the books he reads. It is the book he reads. So I would encourage you to learn culture and history from the Bible. For example, I'll just give one example. The chart that I made when we're going through the books of the Kings. Have you seen that chart with all the Kings? It's straight from the Bible. On the front of the chart is the Kings. On the back of the chart is the Prophets. That chart has been so helpful for me. I just made it myself over the last few months while preaching through the Kings. I thought that would have been so helpful if someone had given me that chart when I was his age. Why didn't someone give that to me? Well, the question is, Seth, why didn't you read your Bible carefully and make that chart? You could have done it. It doesn't take anything but some eyes and read it carefully. So letter A, observe the Bible. And notice in the Bible... How one passage will help another passage. Number one, this is interesting. A common man's house in Bible times would have consisted of three rooms. A main room, a guest room, and a stable room. Now, that line I got from a book. And you can see it right there. Footnote 25. But the substance of that line he got from the Bible. Look at those Bible verses. Judges 11, 29 to 40. Matthew 5, 14 and 15. 1 Kings 17, 19. Those three passages, if you read those three passages together, you will understand that the average home, when people were growing up in Israel, would have been a small home with two to three rooms in it. And often the livestock would have stayed by the house or even in the house. Often the third room would have been like what we call today a garage. A larger room where the cattle would have come inside to keep them warm in the cold nights and to, keep, to help you keep warm. This is not the day of you can go buy blankets to check you. It's hard to keep warm. You keep your cows inside, they can't be stolen. And they keep you warm, they head out. Okay, it's going to smell, you have to clean it every morning. And that explains, and if you look at those passages, you'll see it. In Judges 11, that's the story of Jephthah. In Judges 11, verse 29, Jephthah returns from the fight, and he vows to God, God, if you will help me beat these people in battle, then the first thing that comes from my house, I will offer as a sacrifice to the Lord. Why would you ever do that if you thought your house was filled with people? He thought in his house were also animals, and that it's common for dogs or the cow, or the goat, to come out. He thought, I'm going to be walking home, and I'll see my home, it's a kilometer away still, I'm walking, and then I'll notice, and I'll give the very best of my cows, the very best of my sheep, God, you you arrange it, so that the very best cow comes out, and I'll sacrifice that to you. And do you know the story, what comes out? It's his daughter. 
But it makes no sense if the house was like our houses are today, where people only stay. Why would you ever say, I'm going to offer, I know I only have one daughter and I have one wife, but whatever comes out of my house, why would you ever say that? No, he said that because he knew there's livestock connected with my house. Um, 1 Kings 17, 19 is the story of a room being prepared for Elijah. Now, there was a room made there already. Why? Because it was a woman who had no child. There was one room for the adults, an empty room, and then a place maybe for the for the cows or a place, uh, a third place. So they said, and she even says there, we have an extra room. Can we give it to them? That's because there was no children. The average house in ancient days would have been a small place, a two room or a three room. And commonly the cattle would have been connected or even staying inside. Now look, that's a cultural detail. That's going to help you understand passages like that. And you can get it right from the passages when you compare It also helps you understand what? Luke chapter 2. Jesus is going when when Mary is about to have Jesus. They can't find any room where? In the inn. So where do they put Jesus? In a place for the animals. You mean, honestly, the people were so cruel. The Jews love hospitality. It's one of the requirements to be hospitable to one another. And you're going to see a young man at 20 years old and a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old girl. And she's very pregnant and feeling the contractions of labor. And they're going to come by saying, please let us in. And people are going to say, stay? No way. Go stay there with the dogs. Honestly? No, 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 no. What they said is, our houses are so small but you can have the stable room. You can have the part of the house where, 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 the, where the cows and... I mean, we've got six kids ourselves and we have two rooms, so there's really no space. But you can take this space. The Jews weren't cruel to Mary. The people at Bethlehem did not say, Ah, you? We don't care about you. It was still very humble Because it proves, again, Jesus was born into a very poor family and into a poor culture. Because he's born in a house that's just a two-room, three-room. It doesn't mean they put Joseph in the mud crawl. I mean, you've seen that, right? The places where cattle stay. There's the pole walls, uh, um, uh, fences around the side. And the whole floor is just mud. Why wouldn't Mary sit under a tree to have the baby then? Now, what happened? So, different passages of the Bible open up when you compare them with each other. Number two, here's, a, here's an example of cultural and historical details. Day is right, good, and beautiful in the Bible, while night is dark, frightening, and potentially cowardly. Yeah, compare all these verses. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. What's that show? He's weak. He's unprincipled. He's not sure. He's doubtful. But in John chapter 4, the woman goes to the well in the day. In John chapter 13, Judas goes out and it says, and it was night. Why did they put that phrase with Judas? Because later on, 
They're going to say, this is your hour and the power of darkness. So in the Bible, in the Jews' culture, you learn that day is good, night is bad. These are symbols. So letter B, you can buy books. It is not wrong to get books. It's good to get books. They can help you. Books are like a taxi. You could reach Polokwane by walking, but you could reach it much more quickly if you took a taxi. If you can get a good book, it can help you more quickly. If you can't, just read the Bible carefully. Number two, common areas of cultural differences. Let me just give you five. Your notes have four, but I'll give you a fifth one. Letter A, Jewish marriages. You will, it will help you to understand many parts of the Bible if you understand Jewish marriages. In Jewish marriages, there was something called betrothal. What is betrothal? It was the time when the man would come and agree on the price to pay for his wife. He would put the money down and he would leave without his wife. He would go away. He doesn't have the wife, but he left what? Now, that's not the way African culture is. You put the money down, and what do you go with? You go with the girl. But in Jewish culture, you put the money down, and you go, and you do what? Letter B. You get the house ready. And then, number three, what do you do? You have a wedding. The wedding is when the house is done. The betrothal is that agreement you make. You put the money down, she's mine. She can't be sold, she can't do this. I get that one, she's mine. Now I'm going to go and get a house for her. And then I come back and take her. That helps because what happened with our Lord Jesus? Joseph put the money down and paid for Mary. While he was building her house, she's pregnant. So in Matthew chapter 1, he thought to do what? Divorce. Divorce her. He had every legal right because they had not lived together. He had not lived together. He had seen her. He had talked to her. He had thought about her. He had put the money down. He's building the house. He's thinking every day what a wonderful life it's going to be with my wife in my house. And then he hears the news. Did you hear? Did you hear? His heart sinks. He thinks about divorcing her. And then he says, no, I'm just going to do it privately. I'm just going to go to the parents by myself and say, the deal's off. He has that right from the Old Testament law. And that's why, that's in what chapter of Matthew? What chapter of Matthew? Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you cannot get divorced except for fornication. Yeah, like they had thought happened with Mary. If you put the money down for the girl and walk away and you haven't been together yet, and you find out that she's got, a, uh, she's got a baby, yes, you can divorce then, just like Joseph. Joseph was going to do it, that's legal. After you've been living together, no, no more. There's no other chance for divorce. Now, what do I learn that from? Straight from reading the Old Testament, reading the New Testament. And then do you see how that pictures our Lord Jesus? When did Jesus pay for his bride? When did he pay for his bride? On the cross, he paid with his blood. 
Then what does he do in John 14, 1 to 3? To prepare a house. And then someday what's he going to do? His bride. He paid for her. He's building the house. When he's good and ready, he's going to come back and take her. And she must be ready at all times and be pure and spotless and saying, I know he's here. Oh, I wish he would come. I wish he would come. What girl could forget? Oh, I think, I think a guy paid for me. I, did a guy pay? I can't remember. No girl can forget. But the church, that's even in the book of Jeremiah 2, verse 32. Can a maid forget her wedding garment? Can a bride forget the day of her wedding? But my people have forgotten me. That's Jeremiah 2, right in the same time when he talks about marriage. So those things you learn from reading the culture. Letter B, Jewish life. <clears throat> the architecture of homes. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. Uh, we just heard about this on Sunday. You learn that homes are built in such a way that commonly people would bathe on the roof because it's cooler. Rich men only would have very tall houses like the king. Agricultural society, Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is the parable of the sower, the farmer. That only makes sense if everyone is farming. Number three, family relationships, Genesis 34. Visitors, Luke 11. Letter C, Jewish religion. The sacrifices, the priests, the feasts, the tabernacle and the temple. You will know so much about the culture and the history and the religion and the background of the Bible if you just read the Bible carefully. And then this is one that's not in your notes. Letter D, Jewish history. You can write this on the, on the blank spot to the right. Letter D, Jewish history. The Bible records Jewish history. Underneath that letter D, number one, patriarchs. The time of the patriarchs. That's from Abraham up to Moses. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the 12 sons. Those are the patriarchs. Number two, underneath that is Exodus. Exodus. That's the time of Moses and Joshua. Then, after Exodus, right, number three, Judges. Judges. Number four, Kings. Number five, Exile, E-X-I-L-E, E-X-I-L-E, exile. Those are the periods in Jewish history from the time of Abraham right up until the time of Jesus. We could put one more if you want. You don't have to put this. Number six, Roman occupation. That's the time of the New Testament, when the Romans conquered the Jews. But my point is this. 
Read your Bible and you'll see that period of history. And if you look at the big period, that picture that way, you can understand very clearly what God is doing. Look at those five points, those six points. Patriarchs, God calls Abraham. Exodus, he takes them out of slavery. Judges, he rules them. They reject him and they want kings. Exile, he punishes them and takes them out of their land. And then if you want, you can finish with the Roman occupation. He finally puts the Romans over them and destroys them. Now you can understand almost all of these facts if you just read the Bible carefully. Yes, there are some things outside the Bible. Like in 70 AD, this is a very important date that is outside the Bible. 70 AD. What year did Jesus die? 30 A.D. So 40 years after Jesus died, this is a very important date. The Bible, it's inside the Bible, but the Bible doesn't talk about it explicitly. In, well, it mentions it, but it doesn't, it doesn't allow you to find the date. 70 A.D. was the time when the Roman government finally crushed and destroyed Jerusalem. Broke down the walls, destroyed the temple... In 70 AD, 40 years after um, our Lord was crucified. Now that date is not in the Bible. But you read Matthew 24 and see if you don't find that. You're going to find that in Matthew 24. You're going to find that prophesied in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9. If you compare Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew 24... You'll find something. You'll say, this is terrible. When did this happen? And the answer is it was in 70 AD. Now that date is not recorded in the Bible. But most of the dates are recorded in the Bible. Or a great many of them. And by the way, let me say one thing here. There is a theological system that is built... On this date. The whole system is built on this. Which means. If. If the book of Revelation was written. After this. The whole theological system. Is false. There is a theological system that is built saying 70 AD is so important. My answer to that is, then why isn't it in the Bible? It's in there, but not the date. If you just give this Bible to the average song, it will be very difficult for them to come up with 70 AD. Maybe they'll compare Daniel 9 and Daniel 20, Matthew 24. But there is a theological system called post-millennialism that is built off of knowing that date. And if you don't know that date, you cannot reach their theological conclusion. That's dangerous. You're now saying that people cannot understand the Bible correctly unless they have history books that tell them that date. Uh, I thought that's the debate with post-millennialism. We say Revelation was written in 90 AD. Almost everyone says Revelation was written in 90 or 96 AD. How many years after Jesus? 
Almost everyone says Revelation was written 60 years after Jesus. But only the post-millennialists say, no, 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 no. Revelation was written in, in, in maybe 69 AD. They have to push Revelation before 70 AD or else their whole system falls apart. It has to be. And the response is, really? If your system is built on something not in the Bible, and there's not a lot of evidence to see that Revelation was written in 69, I guess it's possible. But it's going to be very difficult for John to write those things in 69. Referring to 70. Okay, letter, it's written letter D in your notes, but you're going to write letter E. Scratch out letter D and write letter E. Common Roman customs. So if you want to learn the culture and history of the Bible, keep these five categories in mind. Uh, Letter A was marriage. Letter B is Jewish life. Letter C is the religion. Letter four is the history. And letter five, Roman customs. Roman customs are very important because of what? The New Testament was written when the Romans were in control. So in, in the New Testament, you have many Roman customs and Roman words. Like the denarius, the penny that was used, the Roman penny that was used to pay people when they worked. That's in your New Testament. And there's many more things like that. Citizenship, Acts 22. Tax and tax collectors, Luke 19. The religion, Acts 17. Slavery. Wow, slavery was different under the Roman Empire. If you just read the New Testament and compare all of its verses on slavery, you'll understand pretty well what slavery was like in in their time. Here's my point, and I close with this. We need to understand the culture and the history of the Bible. And it is very helpful if you can read books outside the Bible. But if you don't have those books, you can get it all or everything that's most essential just from your Bible. As you read your Bible, keep your eyes open. I told you all of these principles are just sections or or children of the first great one. What's the first principle? Observe. Look at the fish. So as you're reading your Bible, mark cultural references. When you see them referenced the way the husband would have to help out the family members. When you see the way the wife would speak or treat her family. When you see the way work took place. When you see the way they, the kinds of jobs they had, the kinds of architecture they had. Pay attention to that culture and it will help you greatly in understanding the Bible. I want to close with this warning. Beware of ignoring the plain commands of the Bible by appealing to the culture. Some people read 1 Timothy 2. I believe it's in your notes. Yeah, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Some people read 1 Timothy 2, 12, where it says women cannot preach. And what do they say? 
Oh, that was just the culture of the Romans. Women could not preach in that culture. But in our culture today, it's all right. Be very careful about taking the teeth out of the lion with this excuse called culture. People will do that. If they want a divorce, they'll say, oh, well, that was just their culture. It's different today. If they want to have a woman pastor, well, that was just the culture. If they say, I even heard a man say that husbands can beat their wives. They said, well, you spank your children so you can spank your wife. And they would appeal to culture. In our culture, we do it this way. In our culture, this is how you love your wife. Be very careful about taking the teeth out of the lion with the twisted tool of culture. Because people love to do that today. And they'll even do it with homosexuality. They'll say, oh, the sin in the Bible was not homosexuality. It was not being friendly to strangers. That's what they say. They put that in books. Isn't that stupid? It is. Beware of changing the Bible by saying, well, well, culture, culture. No, let's take the Bible the way it stands. Any questions? Uh, is uh, African uh, culture uh, wrong according to, to, to marriage like uh, in, in, in the New Testament? Is African lobola wrong because when you pay, you also take the girl? Yes. No. There's no command in the Bible that the way to have marriage is to follow the Jews' culture. We're not saying that you have to follow the Jews' culture. We are saying if you want to interpret the verses from the Jews, you need to know their culture. We are not saying you need to copy the Jews. We're saying if you want to understand what the Jews said, you'd better understand their, their views of marriage. Just like if, if a white man comes here to plant a church in the village and he hears about lobola, he would better understand what the African means by lobola before he, he talks about it. The same thing is true. If you're going to teach the Bible, you should understand what the people were talking about in the Bible. No, we do not have to marry people exactly the way they were married in the Old Testament They would have a multi-day feast. No, there's no command that your wedding has to be three days or seven days. There's no command that you... No, no, no. no. We're just describing what happens, and if you want to understand it, you need to know the culture. Good question. When we grow up, probably in the 90s, in the church, they say the woman must wear a hat, and they must wear no shoe dresses, and they are not allowed to, you to wear... Pants, long pants. This is done like that talk. Okay. The question you're asking is, when we grew up, our culture was women had to wear these clothing and men had to wear this clothing. Now do we have to do that? That is an excellent question, but that's a little bit different from what's being discussed here. Here we're asking, what was the culture of the Bible? So that we can understand the words of the Bible. That's a little different from saying, what is my culture doing today? So if you want to ask, should we wear those clothes or not? I, the way to answer those questions would simply be, 
What message do you want to send? What message do your clothes send? So everyone has to ask themselves before they come to a church on Sunday, what message do I want to send? And number two, what message are my clothes sending? Everyone's clothes send a message. We all know that. That's why we dress. We all dress in a certain way to send a message. So, but that's a little bit different from what we're discussing here. What we're discussing is, let's look at the text and understand their culture so that we can understand what the text means. But if you want to ask this question, what should we do at church? Then the question would be, okay, let's, let's step back and say, what message are your clothes sending? What message do we want to send at church? Good questions. Go ahead. Uh, so we've got some people who are following this Jewish culture now. They're taking this Jewish culture into the church. Yes. So are they, are they wrong? Oh. Yes, they're completely wrong. The question is, we have people now taking the Jews' culture into the church today. Is that wrong? And the answer is, absolutely it's wrong. Read the New Testament. The book of Colossians tells us there's a break between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There's a break. The book of Acts tells us there's a break between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Romans says, Romans 14 there's a break between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a break between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The book of Galatians. There's a break between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The people who are trying to bring Jewish culture into the church are the people who have not taken this class. Or, let me be more specific, those are the people who have not looked at the fish. The people who are trying to bring Jewish culture into the church have not read the book of Galatians. They have not looked at the fish of Colossians. They have not looked at the fish of 2 Corinthians or Acts. Any of those books will correct that problem. Those books are explicit that we do not become Jews. We are a new nation, a new people. We are under the laws of Christ. So yes, those people are wrong. In fact, in the Bible, they're called Judaizers. People who want you to make you like the Jews. And they're called false teachers in the book of Galatians. False teachers are going to try to say, you need to be just like the Jews in the Old Testament. That's false teaching. And they would see that if they just read any of those books I mentioned. Yeah, excellent questions. Any more?